Delighted to say we're joined on the line now by renowned writer Ray Conley. He's just released a brand new biography called Being Elvis, A Lonely Life. Ray, thanks very much for joining us tonight. Good to be with you. Um, the opening forward of this paints as bleak a picture of Elvis and his life that I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's It was grim towards the end, wasn't it? It, it was incredibly grim. It was, um, But his, his whole life was grim, really. Um, you know, he had this incredible fame and all these things, but... He wasn't his own man. He was lonely. You know, I think extreme fame brings extreme loneliness because he was the only one. You know, I mean, in the book, I say how John Lennon told me how it was murder being a Beatle, but at least they could share it. You know, they, they could share the fame and the hysteria and everything. So there were four of them. There's only one Elvis. This picture, 14 weeks before his death, he's, he's physically wrecked. The idea that he just asks, can this girl hold his hand? I know. His girlfriend had gone off and left him, his new girlfriend. And she's only 20 or something. She's a child. You know, he was 42. And um, they had to look around. You know, they couldn't leave him by himself. They were, he hated, you know, he was, he was dangerous by himself. He might do all kinds of things. You never, you never knew. So they, um, they got this girl who was one of the backing singers, Kathy Westmoreland, who he'd had a, a fling with several years earlier. And they'd stayed friends, and she was, you know, and she dropped a date she was going on and came to, to be, you know, to be with him and hold his hand and talk to him. And he told her how, um, he asked her sort of, you know, he didn't think he was going to be remembered after he died. And she sort of said, come on, you're not going to die, Elvis, you know, you're only 42. And, but he was, you know, no, he didn't think he'd done anything important. He hadn't made a big movie, he hadn't done, you know, which is amazing because he'd, he'd done so much, but he didn't see it that way. And, you know, he's physically wrecked, mentally yeah. tortured, really. And financially, he, he's actually not doing that well either, is he? No, it was, he was in a terrible situation where the, the, you know, he was not good with money. And the colonel was a big gambler. Colonel Park, his manager, gambled and gambled and gambled. And Elvis gave money away like it was a river just giving it away all the time. And he never bought stocks and shares. He never bought, you know, things that he, well, investments. He just spent it as it came. And he had 39 people working for him. And that big estate to run, he, he just bought a, a, um, an apartment in, or a house, an apartment for, uh, for his ex-wife, you know. And, and he had all these expenses going on. And he just had to keep touring. People sort of said, why don't you just take a year off? And, I mean, he should have been in the hospital, really, shouldn't he? Yeah. But... Um, and I thought, I've got to do all this, and the colonel needs the money. I mean, you know, the, the, the terrible thing is, um, at that time, he'd also made a TV documentary for CBS Television in the States, which um, showed him at his worst, you know, and why any manager would, would actually want to show his um, best, but his only client, yeah. you know, in that state, I can't imagine. It had to be, he had great, he had great debts. Yeah. Gambling death the colonel did, and he put Elvis through it, and Elvis did it, you know. Wow. Elvis worked hard, you know, all and, his life. And this is, work. though, that, you know, that 14 weeks before his death, you know, a lonely man, racked by, by guilt, racked by feelings of failure, really, and his dread. You yeah. know, people, if you want your, your room 101 fear, his dread is of losing everything and having to sell Graceland. Yeah, yeah, that was, well, that, that was always with him. You know, I think probably if you're born as poor as he was, he was, you know, I mean, incredibly poor, that family. He was born in a, a, a sort of shack or a house, a sort of shotgun house, which, which you buy in, in sort of, you know, the sides, uh, 
and put the sides together on on little on little sort of stilt things. And he was born with that. With, there was no running water, there was no electricity. They had the only light was from an oil lamp. Had to carry the water from the well, you know, further up the street, up the road, up the unmade road. He was born in the middle of the night like that. Um, his mother had another baby at the same time. She had, he had a twin called Jesse. Jesse died at birth. Um, they were poor. And then two, when he was two, his dad was in jail. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, oh, I think those things just hung over him all his life. Haunted him, really. And Sorry? It haunted him, really. Yes, it haunted him. Yeah. It's it funny. There. Reading and that so, bit. And also, but the other thing about, about being a poor boy, he always thought, I want to share it. You know, almost as though you're guilty about it. You've got all this money and you think, I can't just have it for myself. I've got to spend it on my friends. Give it, you know, yeah. so whoever was there got, got whatever they wanted. You know? He just gave it away. It, it, it strikes me as the grapes of wrath, reading all this. Yeah, absolutely. Really it's isn't it? the it dust really bowl is. of poverty. When you, there's a picture of him and his mother and father and it could be Grapes of Wrath completely, yeah. couldn't it? And then they leave, they go to Memphis, it is, is again Grapes of Wrath, the four of them in a car with their, the granny. Is, yeah, is grandma. And also brush. what they did, there's a thing, if you ever go to Graceland, or it was hit, actually here last year at the O2 exhibition, there's a sort of old old sort of box, big trunk thing, yeah? and they put all their belongings in this big trunk, which wasn't that big, and put it on top of the car and strapped it on. And that was then, you know, start, we've got to go somewhere. Unbelievable. You know, we've got to start again and try again somewhere else. Yeah. And actually, that worked out for them. They did, it did. You know, relatively well in, in Memphis. Yeah. When you go through that part of his life, the, you know, I think he was um, around 13 or so going to Memphis, yeah, wasn't 13. he? And, you know, he's there in school till he's eight, 18. There's no real indication in any of that of what's going to come. Sure there isn't. Yeah, well, the, of the, you know, the biggest star in the world is no, going no, to emerge no. from that. Those uh, well, the He's only okay thing you get school. from it, the you get from it, that he was, he saw himself as a star earlier. You know, he but thought he we was all a star. do, though. No, yeah, we all do. We don't dress up like that. Uh, he dressed sort of zany clothes and things, and he was different. His interest, I mean, interest in in the church, in singing, um, in a Pentecostal church. He wanted to be a in a gospel group and sing the gospel group. He was, he was different. Um, the kids at school thought he was different. He had his long hair and, and, you know, I mean, he looked like something out of the Civil War with long sideboards and things where other kids had sort of, you know, the American flat top and, you know, short mm. hair and things. So he, he was always different. And his mum had always said to him, you know, you're special. And in a way, he must have, in a way, believed it. But, of course, he knew he could sing. Yes. And he knew people liked to hear him sing. Yeah. And... He'd only been left school a few days and he went to Sun Records, which did a sort of thing on the side where you could make a, you could make a record for yourself yeah. for a few dollars and just to hear what you sounded like. And he went there and he told a lie saying it's my mum's birthday. It wasn't actually, but, you know, he wanted to, so he, he was too embarrassed to sort of say, I want to hear myself, you know. And he played himself. So he was obviously at that stage interested. Thinking, I wonder what could happen. Could I be a singer? Could, yeah. it, could it happen? But, you know, the, I think it, you said he was something like number 17 out of 22 on the particular day or something like that. They were going in to record. There were lots of people going in oh, to yeah, record. Oh, yeah, yeah, lots of them. But what happens over the course of, of this weekend where he kind of goes in on a Saturday, he's asked back on Sunday and then back well, to... Well, that's the year after. On okay, the, yeah. That was the first time he went in and he said to Marion Kasker, whom I met, who was a lovely woman, and she sort of said, well, he, he was just nervous and very shy and couldn't get him talking and it was murder. And... Um, 
And he said, well, do you know anyone who wants to sing? And of course, she, she didn't, but she thought, well. But there was something in his voice that she thought, oh, I should save this. So, I re- so she recorded it on the tape recorder as well as making the record, which had to do in two separate things, to play to Sam Phillips, her boss, who ran Sun Records, and played it to him. He said, yeah, okay, wasn't that bothered, but, you know, she remembered the boy's name. She called him Timothy Buttons, because to remind herself about it for some reason and put it on a piece of paper. And uh, during the next course of the next year, he, he got a job driving this little pickup truck to take um, electrical equipment around Memphis, this, this little company. And he'd always pop in and say, how are you doing, Mario? Um, do you know if anybody wants a, wants a singer? <laughs> and of course, he never did. But he, he asked often enough that in, in the end, Sam Phillips said, well, let's get the boy in then. You know, he's, he's very keen, obviously. And let's see what he sounds like. And he, and he goes in and he, he, he sort of, Things to Sam Phillips, who listens to it, and yeah, 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 that's fine. He had a song, and it didn't really work. You know, you know, the songs. I mean, someone got this song. You know, he rather liked, but Elvis didn't do much with it. So, well, sing me everything you know, Elvis. So Elvis went through lots of songs, and Sam told me about all this. It was just fascinating how he'd just listen and listen and listen, and he just thought, well, there is something about him, but maybe let's see what it's like with musicians. Because Elvis had never sung on stage, never did anything apart from you know, sing on the stairs at his home in the apartment block. And so they got, they got in Scotty Moore and Bill Black, who were two, you know, as Scotty would say, semi-competent musicians. Semi-competent, yes. And that's, that's what Scotty said, semi-competent. And, uh, and, the, and then, then one night, he said, well, let's just try and make him see what happens in the studio. And he did, and it didn't work, and, and they tried all kinds of songs, that they, you know, things that Elvis thought Sam would like. Um, and he didn't, and he didn't. And finally, thinking, well, what am I going to do? I mean, this is my big chance. I'm blowing it. What am I going to do? And then he asked him, that's all right, Mama. Because he, he knew a lot of blues songs. And hey-ho, Sam said, hang on, hang on. What are you doing in there? Well, you know, start again. This, yeah. this sounds okay. And, you know, so they made it. This it, I mean, is... it was like just sheer chance. He could have gone out of there and not sung it. Yeah. This, that part is like alchemy. I think yes. you know they're they're just messing around. It's a blue song. They're not expecting a white, you know, boy well, to be able to sing it, to even know it. You know? Yeah, and that's, he knew all the blue songs because he liked them. Yeah, yeah, that's unique. They they find a way around his voice. They kind of their their musical limitations always serve as a strength to to make room for his voice. Really, yeah, and, yeah. And and then you know before they and even he only have, knew about three chords on the guitar at that time. You know, he, he was playing. A, guitar yeah and only knew it you know that's an inspiration <laughs> to all punk rockers around absolutely the world, you yeah. know um and then the next bit where, where the they haven't even got a b-side recorded but this dj uh-huh. dewey phillips yeah dewey. D- did he dewey. really dewey they were yeah, dewey. Americans with, dewey. did he really play it 11 times god knows people said it was 10 <laughs> 11 i mean it played all night but he did play it a lot over and over i mean that that's the the legend these legends go on you know and yes but he played it a lot and they got Elvis out of the cinema because Elvis was too embarrassed to sit in his house yes. listening to it. So he went to the pictures <laughs> and, t- and told his mum and his dad, you listen to this. And they rang him out and said, they're from the studio, which you would do these days, but we didn't in those days in England or Ireland, did we? No. You know, and get him out of the cinema and bring him down. And he went in there and Elvis was sort of, he never even spoke in class hardly. Um, he was just a very, very shy person. Yeah. And so he got talking, they asked him, you know, what school he went to, just to find out find out what, um, if he was black or white, because uh, he sounded black, but he was white, and this yeah. made a difference in Memphis, what color you were. Yeah. And 
he got in to do all these things. But I mean, it was just extraordinary. All these things happened. But what we always forget, it was the voice. Yes. There's something in the voice. This is where, yeah, yeah, this is where the the fantastic Malcolm Gladwell and his ten thousand hours theory falls down very badly. Um, He hasn't done ten thousand hours. There just is something in his voice, isn't there? Yes, yes. And I asked a guy the other week who was here interviewing me about um, the music, and he said, "Well, you you can't define it. It's just something which which seems to lock into our emotions." Um, He had it. And, and a few singers in the world do have it. Not that many, actually, because there are a lot of singers, you know, millions of singers. Yeah. But how many do we remember? And for some reason, there's a kind of yearning in his voice. Yeah. And also, he had many, many voices. You know, he could sing. I mean, you know, Frank Sinatra sang one kind of song, or maybe two or three, and not many. Elvis sang all kinds of songs. And he'd, he'd be, you know, being spots for, for some of them. Yeah. He'd be a blues singer for others. He'd be a rock and roll singer. He'd be uh, almost Italian tenor for his now one ever whatever you know yeah he could do all kinds of things what happens next is is the dream on on paper it's the dream it's yeah. incredible success like he like people couldn't imagine riches girls fame yeah. you know sales of records you know records of number ones and most albums going to number one and venues sold out being adored it's very hard to see that trajectory and then see the man at, at the beginning of this book 14 weeks away what could have been done? What could have been done differently to, to try and avoid him ending up so broken like that? I think the great, the great mistake that Elvis made, and we'd probably all have done the same thing, when he got with Colonel Parker, and the Colonel, you know, saw him and thought, "He's the one for me." You know, this boy is something special. When he got there, he signed a contract, and it's about music, and it, it would have sounded great at the time. That it meant that Elvis would. If he sang, they set up a music company with a music publishing company, and if Elvis sang the songs that they published, he would get more of the royalties, yeah? yeah? So it meant that it didn't have to sort of go searching through old blues records to find songs to sing. People would write songs for him, and then he'd get a share of the song mm. in royalties. And, and the way to make money in, in, in music is actually own the publishing. Yeah. And he did, which was fine at first, because it brought him Don't Be Cruel, all shook up, it brought him... Jailhouse Rock, but you know all these things. Liebenstahl began to fall out with them. They wrote Jailhouse Rock because they didn't like the idea of giving up some of their royalties yeah, to, to Elvis, which is understandable. Nor would I. And so, but before the army, at the end of the sixties, he was doing all this. And then after that, he went into Hollywood um, in a big way, big way. And they needed to find twelve songs for every film three times a year. Of course, he couldn't find that many great songs. And he was being managed by a, a sort of middle-aged people at a crazy time, because the time when the, uh, the 60s were getting younger and younger, a young president, you know, youth was the big thing, yeah. and he was being managed by older people yeah. who, were, who were short-term, thinking short-term all the time, get another hit, get another hit album, you can make more money out of making movies than, than you can out of making records, you know, these sort of things. It's all short-termism. So the Colonel had been brilliant in, in the early days in getting Elvis onto right. TV and all those things um, fine. But he was a terrible manager after the army from the 60s onwards because he was right. a bad manager because he, he didn't, he wasn't keen on the music. He didn't understand the music. He had a, he had a cloth ear, as we say, cloth yeah. ear, yeah. Um, but he knew about earning money, getting quick money. 
and that's where Elvis began to go wrong. Right. He got, and he needed the quick money to pay for this lifestyle he built up for himself, all the Memphis, Memphis Mafia, the houses, the, you know, the cars given away endlessly. Yeah. It's sad. You said it's sad, and it just gets sadder and sadder, doesn't it? And it leaves him so. at only 42 in a room with a girl who's sent down to him, just kidding, to keep him company, yeah. wondering what could have been. What could have been done at that time? My word. He would have needed to have his, his father should have said, Elvis, you're going to hospital. Yeah. There needed to be someone who was his friend as well as not his employee. Yeah. Someone who didn't need him on the road, didn't who would say to the colonel, I don't yeah. care what you want, what you say to him, he's going to the hospital and he's going to stay in there till he dries out. And we're going to, but, you know, Elvis would do what he wanted to do. Yeah. He was a very self-driven person but in that, that respect. You know? At that he point... Was a, he was an addict by then. Yeah. Well, at that point, was it that there was nobody or was it that there was nobody? There was nobody like that. There was no one. Priscilla had gone, you know, yeah. maybe she would have had some fair, but who knows? I mean... The marriage had broken up. Wow. He had people around him, um, and they were friends in the sense that they were, you know, worked for him. Yeah. But they still work for him, yeah. you know. And what you need is a mate who doesn't work for you, who, you, who just likes you because of what you are. Yeah. When you become that famous, that young, you don't have mates anymore. And you don't do have you? them because you know fame yeah. makes fame makes you so lonely. Um, it's a life you wouldn't wish on anybody, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That is the most amazing. You wouldn't part wish of that on on anyone no. um, because he didn't deserve it. You know. No. He brought want... so much pleasure to the world, but, but not to himself. You wouldn't want it to happen to your kids. No. Um, Ray, it's a beautiful story told with much love and um, I enjoyed every moment of it. So, Ray, thank you very much. Um, thank pleasure you. Pleasure talking to you as always. To you. I have to ask you one quick question before I go. Yeah. Um, I see um, vinyl being talked about in, in um, various places today. They're listing the most valuable records on earth. Uh, Ringo Starr's own version of the White Album it's going for $730,000, I think. Um, your copy of Imagine that John gave you, you're, you're not tempted? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've got, uh, no. It's, you know, all my recordings of John talking to me and things, people ask for them all the time for documentaries, you know, and I won't ever play them because, you know, it was two mates talking. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it wasn't about the Beatles or whatever, it's just mates talking. And yeah. you sort of think, well, the stuff on them, I don't want, you know, I haven't played them either for years either, you know. But yeah. I, no, no, no. Okay. I've got my, you know, I've got my pride. Yeah, a man of principle. There's not many of them left. I'm, I'm tempted to say imagine no possessions, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the point? Ray, thanks very much for joining us.